Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Today's episode is sponsored by my Lit Daily Online Yoga Classes. This is an exclusive pass into my personal practice and program that I created from experience as a physical therapist and 20 years developing my Lit Yoga methodology. There is a different class with me every day, including special monthly live streams, so you can feel your most lit up anytime and anywhere. Get a three-day free trial today by going to movementbylara.com and clicking daily classes. Let's get moving. Good movement and welcome to Redefining Yoga, a Movement by Lara podcast, which is designed to investigate all aspects of the modern evolution of yoga from my background as a physical therapist and lover of movement. My mission is to help everyone find freedom through smarter and safer movement patterns so together we can be uplifted, benefiting all beings everywhere. Today is a Q&A with me. I like to do these every once in a while because I do get so many questions um, every day and I try to respond to them, but it's nice to do this so that if someone has a question, it might help someone else. So I ask people on Instagram, some of my followers to write me with some questions and I have plenty to choose from. I won't be able to get to them all, but I will try and get to as many as possible. So starting right off the bat, someone is asking me about diastasis recti, how to work with diastasis recti and how to reestablish core stability. This person happens to be 10 years postpartum. So diastasis recti, for those of you who aren't sure about it, is when the abdominal wall has a fascial covering. This, This is the rectus sheath. And during pregnancy, it is stretched. And with some people, it actually separates. And the separation can be a small amount. It can be a very large amount. And it seems to vary depending on how big your pregnancy is, how small you are as a person, and there was no room for the baby to grow. And I've worked with many people who have had this condition. I don't know what else to call it. I don't like that name, but uh, the circumstance that is that occurs after pregnancy. And honestly, the literature is very confused about this. Um, some people in the physical therapy world don't look at this as being a problem that the body actually will problem solve this itself without a lot of interference. And then there's all, then there's, you know, the kind of opposite side of the aisle who thinks that you need a lot of reinforcement. Maybe if it's big enough, you need some kind of abdominal wall belt and you should be limiting some of the movement that really pulls on that area, pulls it more apart. 
So what I will talk to, I will, I will speak from my place of experience with it, from having someone with, you know, four fingers width gap to smaller amount. And so I would say, first of all, you have to put your hands where the gap is. And obviously, if you get this closer to the time that you deliver the baby, it's easier. It doesn't mean 10 years postpartum, you can't help this area because you certainly can. But putting your hands there and kind of gathering that area together really helps the reinforcement of that area, finding kind of a midline. So if you imagine you have this front zipper of the body and that has been opened, you know, and so you're just trying to get the awareness of zippering that back together. And when you do abdominal work, you need to not um, let that area pooch out or puff out, but instead really pull it together and down into toward the back body. The best thing I can tell you is to go onto my lit daily classes because every single class I address the core and I address it from the beginning, not like halfway or even worse at the very end of a class uh, when you're tired and not as, I address it in the beginning because I want you to engage it and then integrate that engagement in your movement practice so that you can not better, you can uh, better educate that area and then take that education into your daily life. So my biggest suggestion would be try the classes. I have a three-day free trial and see for yourself because if you can start doing some of those core movements at the beginning of your practice or at the beginning of your day, it will help you tremendously. Okay, so moving on from there, your thoughts regarding yin yoga. So yin yoga, I will again say this is my opinion and my experience, and I really am of the belief that I I never want to bash anything. And I definitely don't want to tell people to do some, not do something that they're enjoying. So I know there's some steadfast yin practitioners out there and they have probably developed a practice that is uh, healing and um, I guess just feels great for them. I would say my opinion about yin yoga, if I'm going to be fully honest, is that I don't understand it. I understand that it's supposed to help with the parasympathetic nervous system, um, that you are holding a pose for a long time in with some low-level activation of the muscles, and that will eventually have a an effect on the nervous system that overrides our kind of break mechanisms that are in place. So we have all these different neurological feedbacks that we get that are really healthy to have. You know, if we over start to overstretch something, um, we get like this rigidity around the area or tightening because that's our feedback. It's protecting that go the the tissue, and so yin I think is trying to override that so you can get a better stretch. So fundamentally, I don't agree with that. I don't agree with long holds at all. And the research ha- also it really supports this, that, you, that holding for over 30 to 45 seconds, there's no change that's going to happen permanently. Temporarily, you will be able to 
maybe have a deeper stretch, but you're not having a permanent change in the tissue. You're not the deformation, which is where a deformation is a, is not a bad word. It's when you're trying to compress something and change it, that's not going to last. The other big problem I have with yin yoga is that it's really hard to have enough engagement to hold your muscles so that you're not sinking into the joint. And when you sink into a joint, you are pulling or pressing or compressing a different set of tissues that I would not suggest pressing. These are articular structures. This is your tendons. This is your ligaments. These are your, this could be part of your like labrum, your capsules and different hip and different joints of the body. So it's not a place that I recommend going and hanging out in, literally. <laughs> so I think that I'm going to just say I'm not a fan of yin yoga. And I just have also treated, quote unquote, because I have treated as a physical therapist mindset, um, people who are injured in yin. And quite a few, there's a couple different forms of yoga that in particular seem to be injurious, Bikram being one of them, Ashtanga we know is one of them, and yin is one of them. And I think yin often often surprises people because it's not like got the rigor that Ashtanga does or the heat that Bikram does, but it, it is it is it can be um, injurious because you are overriding those neurological systems that are there for a reason. And so I am a big fan of mobilizing joints and pulling on the tissue as you mobilize the joints and in a very functional way, not in holding a pose and using gravity or your own weight or something to try and get the tissues to adapt to it. I I don't think you're going to have a lot of success with that, quite frankly. And that's my opinion. So that's about all I'll say about yin. If you love it, then I'd love to hear from you because I, I, again, it's an open conversation, but I'm but I've just been doing this long enough that there's certain things I'm, I'm pretty, I feel pretty confident about in my opinion, and I don't think it'll change. But I, again, I honor anybody else's opinion on that as well. All right. So here is another question. Dun, da, dun. How do I best counteract muscle tension and imbalance from carrying a toddler? Now, I've been asked this question a lot. And if you don't have a toddler, let's just replace that with whatever you're carrying because you might be carrying a heavy purse or a bag and we tend to always carry it, whatever it is, the same way. The toddler, we might switch around, you know, from side to the side. But how do you counteract it? It is challenging. I will say this, more core, more core, more core. If you can think of actually holding your child or your big package of whatever, up from your center, not just your arms, but from your center and really tightening there and then letting the arms just be this kind of lever that holds the weight. I think you might find that the tension will be redistributed. So it's not going to all be in your shoulders or your back or your neck or your you know arm, but you can get it more into the deeper muscles of the core. So imagine your spine and just the skeleton of it, and then the muscles surrounding it from the front and the side and the back, and then just tighten those because this is like your pole, your big pole of life. Tighten there 
and then kind of feel from that a tightening outward. And then when you add a load onto your limbs, tighten more from there. We often tend to tighten at our shoulders or our neck. And if you can tighten more from this central axis, I think it helps a lot. So I know from when I'm doing something like backpacking, what helps me is when I get the tension perfect in my straps that distributes the weight, the load evenly. And then when I'm walking or going up a steep hill, I focus on the tightening around those deep core structures and everything else tends to be you know, lightened. That being said, you want to think that you're going to be holding something like a toddler in front of your body. So do a lot of unwinding in the back. So do those shoulder rolls that I do a lot in my classes, one shoulder at a time. Do some nice chest openers, doing something in and like on the ground chest opener type thing is really lovely where you're lying on your back and your arms are straight out with the palms up. And then you just move your hips and knees to one side, not for a big twist in your low back, but to get some opening across the chest wall. So you just want to um, open in the chest and then roll those shoulders a lot. And I hope that helps. Okay. So what do I think about posture correction belts for people who are not into yoga? I, I, I will tell you what I think. I don't know. What I think, here's the pro. The pro is that it's going to bring a tactile awareness to your center. And that tactile awareness will help this uh, feedback of drawing into your core. Now, the, the con of that is the same thing. What you wear a lot, you, you adapt to. In other words, you will, I mean, think about if you have something on you don't think about like the way your shirt feels on you unless there's something that's irritating about it. All of your receptors, your sensory receptors just accept it and then you don't you don't think, "Oh, I have a shirt on and I can feel the seams of it and I can feel the end of it." You just did that. So in likewise with a belt, you could eventually essentially ignore it. So you could be wearing it and not doing anything. So I think that um, I've seen people, you know, when I've gone to like Home Depot or something and they have those belts on and they still have pretty bad posture and they're wearing them, but I don't, I think it almost is like a, a it's like a splint that isn't really helping. So I, I think in general, if you use it kind of periodically, so your brain doesn't get used to this feeling of it as a, as a, a way of bringing more awareness in addition to doing core work. You you can't just like it's like when people would put the um the that belt that would vibrate on because they were going to lose fat or something and I mean most of us you know chuckle cuz we're like how is that going to happen? And it's just like you you can't have buy something to do the work for you. You can purchase something to uh be an adjunct to the work you're doing to like be a little bit of a reminder. So I do think that can help. And I, um, so I, I think just use it enough that it gives you um, additional feedback, but you've got to do the work to, to, you know, hold your core strong. Somebody wants me to talk about my daily nutrition. Oh my goodness. Oh, I got a couple questions about that. What do you eat daily nutrition? Well, I will talk a little bit about this, um, but I think I'll save 
save it for another episode to go more in depth. My daily nutrition is this, very simple. I eat when I'm hungry. I try and drink a lot of water, which I fail at, I will tell you, a lot of the time. And part of that is because I do so much talking and teaching and practicing. So I like to practice with an empty bladder. I like to teach with an empty bladder because I don't want to run out of my classroom in the middle of it. And then I just forget. So I, this is something I really uh, try to pay more attention to because I don't drink as much as I'd like to, but I try to drink a lot of water and I have different tactics for doing that. But I eat when I'm hungry. And what I look at as food, and, I, and I've had different relationships with food, and so maybe I will talk about that in another episode as well, but, but my relationship with food ever since I've been vegan is purely beautiful. Like It is fuel, it is, it is nutrition to make me feel energized and strong, and it doesn't have to be perfect. But if I stick to kind of the principles of what I know make me feel good, then I can, you know, have the chocolate or the cookie or whatever like that when I want to. Um, but I, I've noticed just over time, I've wanted that stuff less and less. What I find is the more I'm consistent with eating whole foods, meaning non-packaged, closest to their fo- their form as we would find them in nature, I feel my best, my most energized and my fullest, my most satiated. And that's what I aim for. So my nutrition is really based on that. Fortunately, I have a vegan cafe at my studio. So when I'm at the studio, I always have like lunch there. You know, like I have a a macro bowl and macro bowls are amazing. Um, Look up what is involved with that. But it's basically macronutrients and very little fuss. You know, they're like basically steamed or there's like not oil. It's, it's, but it's so densely nutrient and and yummy. I, I just love it. So I have macro bowls. If you don't have a vegan cafe at your place, then it is some preparation. I mean, it's so that the problem with our eating culture is we have made fast foodish type stuff so easy and so cheap. And we are so busy, busy, busy in our lives that it's just a lot easier to just grab something on the go. And of course, then it's cheaper. And But there is a price to pay for that, my friends. There really is. And this is a huge conversation I had with Gene Bauer on my um, podcast with him. But I would say eat plants, a ton of plants. Try and eat all the colors of the rainbow. Uh, you know, maybe not every day, but as much as you can. Uh, green leafy vegetables for sure. And uh, potatoes. Can I just tell you how much I love potatoes? Uh, There's been all kinds of research on potatoes. You should read Dr. John McDougall. Oh my gosh, read his The Starch Solution. Because this whole thing about how we shouldn't have carbohydrates, and it's, it's all BS. You will feel so satisfied with potatoes in your life. Bake them. We got a little air fryer thing. You can mash them. It's what you put on the potato that kind of ruins it, right? If you if you slather a ton of butter and sour cream, that's just it's just a um, vehicle for fat to come into body, and not the kind of fat you want. But um, but I love baked potatoes, and I put um, veggies in there and all kinds of stuff. And yes, I eat tofu. You can eat whole food, whole based soy products. And all the research has supported that this is super, 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 super great for you and um, protective 
uh, Beyonce got a lot of cancers, but it has to be the whole soy um, bean and it needs to be non-GMO organic. So uh, locate a place that you can buy this stuff. It is cheaper being vegan, people. It is. It might not seem like it, but it is. If everything's prepared for you, then no, because it takes time. But I have rice and beans on a regular basis. Super, like I just saute up some veggies and I, I use vegetable broth after I have, I've been into, I mean, I, I'm a vegan chef and, and I've been to a lot of uh, food demos and all kinds of lectures. And I'm really convinced that we don't need to add extra oil to our cooking it's not that I never use oil, but I don't cook with oil. I use vegetable broth. So sauteing up vegetables, and then I will add some kind of, you know, maybe some beans and then put it over rice. And then my where I do add my fat is in my, what I call my crack, is a chipotle veganaise. You just need a dollop of it, and then you just mix it all around, and it, it melts in your mouth. It's so amazing. So I have rice and beans. Honestly, I'm super simple. I'd have that every day. But I don't. I t- tend to have it maybe once a week, but I could have it every day. So I would say, and I don't snack a lot. I'm not a snacker. So I, I, these are just, but I, that's my intuitive eating. We are not really made to eat every three hours. I don't know who came up with that, but that is really, that's not how your pancreas and, um, functions. So, you know, maybe investigate why you're eating every three hours if somebody told you you should eat every three hours. And yeah, that's all I'll say about that. There's so much more to say, but hopefully that helped you with nutrition. Eat a lot of plants, eat all plants. That's what I recommend and um, eat them as close to their natural form. So let's see, how do I balance seeing yoga as a business versus respecting the practice? Well, I don't think they're um, mutually exclusive. I respect the practice Uh, just like I would respect the practice of medicine, but I'm going to pay a doctor for a doctor's service. I respect the practice of law and how it get, brings such, um, for the most part, you know, it brings such balance into our lives to have a, a legal system, but I would pay a lawyer, you know? So I, I don't, I think when we have, when we put yoga on some kind of pedestal that that we can't make money from it, or we can't view it as a profession or a vocation, uh, then that's too bad. I mean, even priests and ministers and, you know, when you talk about religion, they're getting paid for what they're doing. They don't just like show up and give everybody blessings because it's nice to do that. <laughs> they're getting paid. So I don't look at them as mutually exclusive. I've, I have a lot of respect for yoga. I have a lot of respect for the evolution of yoga and and open-mindedness. And so evolution of yoga does is is whatever is fueling your spirit, whatever is making you a nicer person. So in terms of how do you um, blend these two together, I think it's really the um, the person, so I'll speak for myself, it's, it's how I lead, how I view it. If I view it as something that is worthy of being um, a business, of getting paid for it to teach, then everyone wants to uh, respect that as well and pay for it. And I do. I think it is. I devote a lot of time, a lot of energy into creating my classes, into um, giving time and energy to my students. I never doubt that my time is is worth money. So if you, if this person who's asking is 
is conflicted about it for yourself, then feel confident. Feel that you have something to say. You have a message to give. You have knowledge to spread, but don't stop there. So that's the other thing is business is always growing. And so should your knowledge and your own practice. So all of those are part of business. And I look at business in the, uh, like I often have said, uh, this is a vocation. This is a calling for me. And to do it well, I need to be compensated so that I am encouraged to keep my energy up and my giving out so that, I mean, reciprocity is really what should be happening in, in, in yoga practice. To give, I have to receive. And that, res- and I get a lot of receiving just in having people love this practice and have all their own wonderful experiences of how their movement patterns have changed and how that's changed their energy and changed their outlook and their attitude and their, and, you know, on and on and on, their mental state. So to me, that is the intangible. I could not put money. I couldn't put a dollar value on that. But that intangible is part of the, is part of my reciprocity. If I only got money and I never got the rest, that feeling of like, oh, I love helping people with my knowledge. If I never got that, that, that intangible, then it would be a very empty business. So I think that's the other thing, but reciprocity is that I give and I receive. So I always feel like I give um, in, in very intangibly as well, as well as tangibly. And so I think as long as that flow is there, it's never a question of, is this respectful of the practice that I have a business in it? So for anyone who is feeling mixed about it, and it gets, you know, it gets a d- deeper layer when you become a yoga studio owner like I am and um, running teacher trainings and um, all kinds of things. And then there's people with all different levels of, of I guess, comfort of how they spend their mo- money. So for me, um, when people, when I see somebody and they say, uh, Lara, I can't afford this studio price or this, or I can't afford this. And, and I genuinely see that this would be a, a financial struggle for this person. I will do anything to make it happen. And, but I think that there's a lot of people who will spend $4 on a cup of coffee and then wince at a drop-in of a yoga class. And I would ask those people, well, what, where are you really valuing yoga? Are you valuing it? Because your kind of intangibles aren't really showing that. And so um, I've, I think that we all have different relationships with money. And first work on your relationship with money and what you value. And then if you're leading from that place, what I found is it's, it's never, it's not a problem. I've been doing this for 20 some years and um, it's, it's just, you value yourself highly and, and then you will get compensated tangibly and intangibly that way. So I hope that's helpful. The last question, there's many, many more, but I, I will um, end with this. Um, how do you move through really big pain like grief and how are you doing? And, and uh, some of you know, and, and some of you might not know, my father recently died. Um, so I have moved through 
huge pits of grief. I call it like diving into the abyss. So I can only speak of this and it's still fresh and raw. So just because I'm talking normally doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. It does. And I think the best advice I can give is I am a big feeler. And I've always encouraged my teachers, my students to not be ashamed if they're crying and they don't know why in a class or if they um, are embarrassed and they wince when they're speaking. And I'm like, feel your feelings. Let them emerge. Let them surface. Do not stuff them down. And, And then like experience it and indulge in it, if that's a word, you know, to in like just indulge in the sense that there's no apologies about it. Whatever it you need to do, do it to just release it because it'll still be there, the residue. But if you don't have that like real kind of tidal wave of grief, I think that you it stays with you longer and it and it sticks. And that is something we humans have been doing for our entire civilization is grieving. And I think it's probably only in modern day life that we uh, kind of put, and certainly some cultures do this really well and some cultures don't, but we kind of put like this timeline or this way you're supposed to grieve. There's no right or wrong, but I would say just let it go. Let it happen. And I know for me, I just, you know, wailed, you know, so wail. <laughs> it's really healthy. Um, it's a loss. And, and to not acknowledge that loss um, or try and like be embarrassed about crying is, is just stuffing it down. So I'm never embarrassed about crying. I mostly cry when I'm really moved and happy and I'm touched. But to cry from grief is is easy for me too because I am in touch with my feelings. So I would say move through it and don't put a timeline on it and um, know that I think it will always be there, but it will shift. It will change and it will... I've had other losses, not just my dad, but my dad was a huge one and the hugest I've had so far, but I've had other losses of of friends and of furry loved ones, which have a, a different impact because they're in your lives every day. So the the loss is so searing because it's so obvious. They're not in your daily life anymore in the way that they were. And it's still huge. And when people that have, um, you know, companion animals apologize for their grief because it's just an animal, it's, no, it's big. This animal is a family member. And it's, of course, it's different, but you don't have to say that and you don't have to lessen your grieving because of that, because it's different. They're in your life in a way that even your most beloved human is not. So I think... My biggest message would be, like everything in life, feel it and know that you will survive it. But feeling it is part of that. You will survive it because you went to the depths of it. And 
And I can only speak again from my own place because I know grief can be very entangled with a lot of other emotions. If there was unsaid things that, or, or it was a complex relationship, my dad and I had the most uncomplicated relationship. So it was pure grief. There was no unsaid things. There was no anger. It was just grief. So I think it's a bigger feeling of loss when that happens maybe, but it's also easier to rebound rebound because there is no other emotion left inside. You know, it's, it's just, it was pure love. So I send my heart out to anybody who I know a lot of you have written me. Thank you. And I send my heart out to anyone who is grieving. Reach out for someone if you need it, but also be okay being alone. Go into nature, scream and wail and let it out. And know that I feel it too, because we all feel each other's pain, just like we all want to feel each other's happiness and joy. So I celebrate life, and that is a way of grieving as well, is celebrating what is left. And um, I hope that helps. So thanks for all your great questions, and I'll be doing this again soon. So move well and know that I'm sending you lots of love and hugs. Bye. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.